Nation, welcome to Virginia's Nomics, our journey to build an open and inclusive world for challenging the status quo. We have numbers and people who are good at it, but we still lack people who are able to formulate criteria behind these numbers, connect the dots, create balanced ecosystems, and fair policies around it. Today, I present a conversation with Alicia Silberg, former mathematician and scientist, current venture capitalist and global champion for women in tech. We talk on data science, mathematics, diversity in tech, equality, ethics, and policies. So my first question, I would love to ask you how you decided to uh, balance your life with statistic, numbers, figures. Uh, so for instance, I love statistics and mathematics because it's a part of uh, my disorder and I was limited in conditions and I explored data in order to to teach myself, to learn things. So how you connect uh, yourself with data? Thank you. Um, I think like you, was very personal. and It's always been very personal. So each of us, when we look back on our childhood, I think there are memories that stick out for us. And one of my earliest memories, there's actually two. One of them is sitting with my uh, late father, who died when I was very young. And he was a chemist by training and he graduated in half the time and he was creating things, um, compounds and those things at the back of our family shop. And, um, I was awestruck by the ability to create the stuff from his head. That was the first thing. And it was super young. It was probably three or four at the time. And I never fully understood what he was doing, but it was, it really caught my attention. And the second memory was, um, I was very close to my grandfather especially after my dad died and he loved numbers. He was extremely good at it. And he used to be one of those people that could, you know, like add pages of numbers in his head. And I grew up sitting next to my grandfather learning the stuff. Like I couldn't understand why he did it, but it was cool and it was fascinating. And it was a means that we communicated with one another. So from a very early age, it was something that was there for me, which sounds strange, but when, like, as I say, I had a very, very difficult childhood, especially after my dad died and, you know, we lost everything and maths and music. Funny enough, I was, I'm a trained cellist and pianist and the clarity and the logic and the transparency that the numbers could offer was something that gave me a lot of peace and certainty. And so it was always a safe place I could go to. And I was drawn to people that were like that. So my mentors were always people that were passionate about maths, passionate about advancing this thing that, as I say, I often used to feel like numbers could dance for me because, you know, I found them interesting and intriguing. And I think a lot of people never had that. So I was always very, very grateful that it was this place of comfort. 
Okay. There are many ways how we can use data science for good, from inclusion challenges to unemployment or population growth prediction. For instance, my interest uh, is a human behavior on the web or creating a like-minded ecosystem for finding correlation between uh, particular individuals. What is your interest as a scientist? What kind of a things you try to measure using data science and statistic? So let me begin by saying thank you for all you do because I absolutely love the community you've created and you've brought extraordinary people together and I'm always telling people about you and what you're up to. So for starters, I think that was what intrigued me about what you were doing and I think like you, it's been this lifelong journey of discovery, always looking for answers, always knowing there's a better way. So from a very early age, long before data science was cool, long, long, long before, I used to, I was obsessed with research and I always knew there was something missing in the research. So whatever I was doing, I was like, there's a better way. I don't often know how to explain it to people. Again, that's been a big part of my journey in terms of explaining what goes on inside my head or with the research. But um, I've always liked to find connections between things and often very diverse and divergent things. So when you say what fascinates me, why does it intrigue me so much? Um, how is it a theme throughout my life? I can give you examples where um, from the earliest businesses I was building, I was very, very interested by how can this impact people? How can I measure it? It's been an obsession. I associate growth with measurement, whether it's in the personal capacity or whether it's in um, my work. So the startups I work with, the ones that I've always been the most interested in are the ones that use data and they can measure that data, apply it, because I think that's the only way you really create change in whatever space, whatever you're trying to achieve. And I think that was always a means of connection, again, in terms of the global community I built, where it's like wherever entrepreneurs are in the world, whatever they're doing, if you can give them some type of metric to measure it by, whether it is a social impact entrepreneurship thing or it's a for-profit driven entity, everything ultimately comes down to can you measure it and can you improve through the measurement? So as I say, it's just been a theme throughout my journey as an entrepreneur, investor, mentor, advisor, whatever I do, I feel like this is a fundamental underlying thing that has to be part of it. I believe that there is a strong correlation between talent, creativity, and uncertainty. If we pick such ecosystem, even like a Silicon Valley, we can find that many talented people come from the emerging regions, from Eastern Europe, China, Africa. Um, while you were born in South Africa, which positive and negative uh, things you can find in your journey which uh, help you to find your uh, path as a scientist? So, I, I went on this incredible journey. As you know, I came from South Africa and I see myself as a global citizen rather than a South African citizen at this point in time because I've lived in all these places and I've been incredibly lucky. But at the same time, um, I engage with entrepreneurs from around the globe and I help entrepreneurs from around the globe. And it's something I take very, very seriously. It's a big responsibility in terms of helping these people succeed at what they're doing. But I've learned a fortune. And I think a lot of the growth has come from the fact that when I started out this journey, when I became a UN ambassador and um, I started my radio show, I thought 
I was the one that was educating the entrepreneurs in the emerging markets about Silicon Valley, for example, and how to build unicorns or how to raise funding. And I was educating them via the show and giving them all these insights. And one day a thought came across my mind, which was actually they are teaching me so much. Like it was ironic that I once again became the student rather than just purely the teacher. And I learned that there are things within Silicon Valley that are extraordinary as far as building companies goes. But as far as being an entrepreneur in the emerging markets, there are things that we do that we've learned that are part of us that we're not even often aware of that make us formidable entrepreneurs. Like some of the companies in my portfolio that are doing the best are in the emerging markets. And it's not because purely because you know, the markets are big and they're growing and they're exciting. And these companies are solving massive infrastructure problems. It's also because of the mindset of the entrepreneurs and it's the sense of resilience and the fact that they won't give up. They can't afford to give up. They've grown up in environments where if you succeed, you create huge amounts of impact, not just for yourself, not just for your family, but for your community, for the ecosystem. You have left many, many people along your journey and that comes with responsibility, but it also makes you extremely willing to take challenge, uh, take risks that you wouldn't be willing to take otherwise because you haven't grown up with a safety net. And I think if you ask about the mistakes I made as whether as a data scientist, whether as an entrepreneur, because ultimately I'm the same person and apply this in whatever I do. Um, the times where I've made mistakes is where I've overridden my own intuition, where, for example, I've said to myself, oh, I've done this in the emerging markets this way, therefore um, it doesn't work in Silicon Valley. And those were expensive lessons I learned. Like as an entrepreneur, whatever you do, it has to make sense. And again, going back to the data science, the data is the data. The data should speak for itself and being able to trust that data no matter how uncomfortable it is, you know, we as humans, we often want to override the data. We're like, okay, that's the answer, but uh, I have a better answer. And it's actually like, no, this is reality. This is what I'm facing. And this is how I deal with it in building my company. And so there have been many, many, many mistakes, but I think that's what I enjoy most about being an investor now is that I get to reflect on so many mistakes made and so many very difficult lessons learned especially doing this, you know, global journey and being able to say to entrepreneurs, I did this. Uh, you don't need to learn this firsthand. Trust me, the pain I experienced was bad enough for both of us. Just take my word. This comes from a place of care. And um, by and large, the data shows that it's going to happen to you as well. Because if you just look at enough companies and enough data, you can see this is the reality that you're dealing with. So just do this differently and your outcome will be pretty different. I would love to discuss uh, the following topic. Um, in the 2017, um, our foundation uh, spent a fellowship in order to explore uh, talent uh, in emerging regions. Interesting phenomena was explored. Um, many people who um, uh, were, for instance, places like Africa uh, were forced to, be, uh, to go in the U.S. to build technology, even though it was completely focused on African problems. So basically, we had no opportunity to grow with startup technology or invention in their local country. So we go to the places like Silicon Valley and then 
go back or, or just give back. Uh, there's even a platform which uh, called uh, Move Me Back that helps some entrepreneurs who are, um, immigrate to places like United Kingdom in the United States. So um, I would love to ask you, do you feel that talent invest inventors who come from emerging regions are still forced to migrate in the foreign countries in order to build technologies or uh, we have uh, open platforms which uh, are good enough to uh, contribute to a technology ecosystem remotely? Thank you. Um, it's a difficult one. As I say, I've lived and breathed this my entire life. So I got to a point um, in South Africa as an entrepreneur where we built a lot of companies and one of the companies we built has become very big. But, um, I felt the need to go overseas. I felt the need to, to really expand my knowledge because I was limited by the size of the market in South Africa. I was limited by the size of the opportunities. Um, it was an interesting set of circumstances in the sense that a lot of our development team were world-class, really, really strong development team. And I think one of the biggest challenges was that they didn't realize how talented they actually were, even to this day. Um, I think people in the emerging markets discount how extremely good they are at something. And what's good that comes out of coming to the U.S. is you get to objectively you know, measure yourself against what you perceive as being world-class talent. And you get to say, well, actually, uh, I'm as good as these people. And often there are people that are better than that, which is great because, you know, like you have the ability to take that back to your country. And um, I've seen it time and again where I've, I've invested in a lot of entrepreneurs. One of my companies that I'm particularly proud of is Helium Health. And they're doing incredibly well in Africa and the emerging markets in the healthcare space. And these are African entrepreneurs, but they've experienced the U.S. ecosystem. And so they've gone back and they've built an incredible, incredible business. And they've applied their skills and knowledge to really build a business that will be the number one player in its space um, across the globe, I hope. But um, it came from a lot of, you know, honing those skills. But at the same time, um, Helium helps many, many companies in Nigeria, in the emerging markets in Africa to help hone those skills. And I think we have this pay it forward approach as emerging markets entrepreneurs, where we feel a sense of responsibility to help the next entrepreneurs along the way, which does make it easier in terms of them not having to come here. Like I get tons of entrepreneurs reaching out to me. Like yesterday, I got a, a platform funny enough in Zimbabwe reaching out to me. It's angel investors and entrepreneurs in Zimbabwe and saying, well, we've created this platform. Please, could you take a look at the companies? Please, could you help us? Please, could you give them that visibility? Could you see if you could invest in them? And five years ago, that didn't exist. When I started doing this, um, when I, I remember I was in Kenya, I got this big fellowship. It was a very big deal. And I stood there along with uh, ministers, you know, like from across African countries. And I was like, my aim is to invest in a hundred African companies, like really strong African companies and help build them into Silicon Valley unicorns. And people looked at me as if I was insane. Like, I don't know which planet you arrived from, but there's no way this is possible because there was this perception that it was too difficult. There wasn't a support system. There wasn't anything in place. And when you talk about things accelerating, 
they've accelerated at such a rapid rate. You know Silicon Valley. You see the appetite for the entrepreneurs from Africa, from the emerging markets. And so that need, because of people like you and me, is diminishing for them to come here and build these companies here because we have that knowledge. We have that skill set. We have the ability to educate them. Like I do a lot of public speaking on government panels, investor panels. And like recently, I just stood up in a room full of institutional investors in the UK, very, very powerful people. And it was fascinating because there were a lot of sessions that were off the record. And it wouldn't have happened two years ago where ministers in an African government turned around and said, okay, FinTech is one of our most powerful resources at this point in time. How do we scale things up? How much money do we need? What do we need to do to empower these companies to get where they need to go? Now, I was blown away because you hadn't seen that before. You hadn't seen people who had the ability to help accelerate things and empower people like you and me to get the job done. In the past, we'd have to come here to the US and bring all that stuff back. So things are changing. It's very exciting. I know we have a long way to go. I often get into trouble when I speak publicly and entrepreneurs are like, but you're not dealing with the difficult stuff in the emerging markets. For me, we know what the difficulties are. It's nothing new. It's how do we as entrepreneurs solve those things as quickly as possible to create the kind of environments we want. Uh, recently, we had a talk with uh, Zindi Africa. is a crowd-solving pr platform which use um, data scientists across Africa and beyond in, in order to tackle social problems. They gathered over uh, 10,000 data scientists across Africa. And at the same time, just recently, uh, I explored that uh, such a meetup, uh, it called uh, AI Saturdays. They set a record in terms of visitors of their meetup. Uh, it's dedicated to AI in data science. So I would love to ask you, do you feel that there is a growing interest to computer science, mathematics, data science in Africa, in Central Africa, based on your maybe applications of your startups or on your speaking and your journey? Absolutely. Um, I've been seeing it for many years. As I say, um, I've been doing this for a long time. Like I remember I was saying to my husband yesterday, I remember speaking at um, uh, Rand Afrikaans University in South Africa. And there's this thing called the Raymond Ackerman Academy. And he was one of South Africa's most successful entrepreneurs a very long time ago. And I remember standing there and it was forever ago. And we were talk I was talking about like AI, data science, you know, getting entrepreneurs to start thinking about the stuff. And again, it felt like a lifetime ago. And more and more people started reaching out to me more and more. I saw this growing trend. It really started accelerating for me when I started hosting the radio show. And I had a lot of pushback in terms of the radio show because I was one of the first people to connect um, Africa, the emerging markets with hardcore world-class world thought leaders in different categories. Like for example, I'd host a show on robotics or AI or, and it, would, it was a purely around that topic. And I tried to always create these very diverse panels of experts. So you'd have people coming on the show as experts talking and you'd have someone from Kazakhstan, you'd have someone from India, you'd have someone from America, you'd have someone from the UK, you'd have someone from Africa, you'd have, and I tried to always have five to eight experts. And it was a very difficult logistical thing to do to get experts from around the globe every single time talking about a topic, say, for example, AI. And what I noticed was I have thousands of WhatsApp groups. I'd see entrepreneurs applying this stuff live. So they'd be like, oh, okay, this is interesting. 
I never knew about this. Let me go and apply it. And they go and use YouTube. They go and use different resources to supplement what they were learning and applying it. And I think when it really hit home for me was one day I got this video from an entrepreneur, never knew them. And I get a lot of inbound. And this entrepreneur was like, I built a helicopter. I'm like, what the hell? This guy has some scrap metal, you know, like all the stuff. He went online, he heard the show. He was like, oh, the topic sounds really interesting because I'm fascinated by things that fly and I'd invested in a drone startup. And, you know, we did some very, very interesting shows. And this entrepreneur in Kenya decided to build himself a helicopter. And it was a moment in time for me because for most people, it sounds insane. You know, like that someone would go and build a helicopter in their back garden. And, but for me, it was like, we never put any limitations on this person. We never said to this person, you can't do this. So this person just decided, I am going to do this. And lo and behold, look what they created. And I know we have tons of stories like this today. All these different things, like I'm very involved in an AI startup for blindness. And they do incredible work. And they have a huge community of data scientists in India and Nigeria and that. And people often don't realize the quality of data scientists in these countries. And I've, I've just met incredible entrepreneurs who have been, who've self-taught themselves data science, whatever it may be. And you're like, there were no limitations placed on them. And as a result of them not being able to get a formal education, they created this environment for themselves where they just kept absorbing and absorbing and absorbing. And they've created these incredible companies as a result. And we both know Elon Musk and what he's done. And he came from Africa. And it's like, I actually grew up like two blocks down the street from him. My uncles went to the same school as him. But I think what people don't think about is the fact that he was reading two books a day. And those two books a day was ultimately what created that extraordinary mind because he was absorbing so much and creating these mental models. And that was ultimately what created these opportunities for him to build these companies because he had this encyclopedic knowledge. And from my perspective, I don't see why every entrepreneur across the emerging markets can't do that. It's, it's very, very, very feasible. I think the question is, are you willing to put in the hard work to create those kinds of opportunities for yourself because no one's going to do it for you. You have to put your bum on a chair and you have to actually actively study this stuff and apply this stuff and be willing to be challenged at a world-class level because the more you challenge yourself, the more you engage with people who know the stuff and are willing to help you level up in terms of your abilities and applying it, that's that's where the opportunities are created. Now, I would love to talk about science and entrepreneurship. Um, I deal with many teams related to uh, uh, extremely hard science, like um, robotics and AI for neuromuscular disorder, uh, speech recognition, facial recognition for uh, disabilities. And pretty negative uh, thing I can explore that uh, really scientific uh, startups and inventions just not able to uh, be commercialized uh, due to much complexity. So I would love to ask you as a scientist, over your journey, over your journey as a scientist, as an entrepreneur, as a person who deal with ventures and startups, do you feel that sometimes people with very deep academic, scientific, and research background are not able to fulfill the whole potential of themselves in 
uh, ventures because we whole uh, market demand is a bit simplified. So you would love to make something very complex, uh, very interesting and unique, but you're just not able to commercialize it right here and right now. It's a brilliant question and it's very topical. And I think a lot of people don't engage enough about this because it is a big problem. I've made these mistakes myself where um, we, were, we built one of the first voice analytics platforms and um, I was obsessed. Like I was absolutely obsessed of, you know, figuring this out. And it was before it became cool to do, it, to do voice analytics. And I really, I was not understood. What we were doing was way ahead of what anyone else was doing at the time. And we could have really sold the company for a lot of money. In the end, we didn't sell it for that much money because it was early. And we had interest like from the National Security Agency. We had customers, big pharma customers, big financial services customers. But ultimately, everyone wanted us to dumb down what we were doing to something very, very simple, probably 10% of what it could ultimately do because that's what the market wanted. And um, I learned a fortune of lessons about um, commercialization. I deal with it on a regular basis. So some of the companies you just mentioned that you're involved with, to me, those are fascinating companies. Like I, I deal with some of the most fascinating hard science companies. I, I work hands-on with entrepreneurs. So I take my job very seriously in the sense that I don't see myself as a traditional investor who, you know, they say they give a lot of help, but a lot of investors don't really get their hands dirty in terms of helping companies succeed. Um, this is this thing I've done my entire life, which is being an entrepreneur. And now I wear the hat of investor. And so I'm extremely empathetic when it comes to entrepreneurs, the kind you talk about. Um, at times, I find my job very difficult because I get um, pitch decks from extremely brilliant science companies, like extremely, like, you know, run by a team of geniuses. And you're like, like your heart drops because you're like, I can help you so far, but I need the market to respond in kind for you to go all the way. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I've iterated on this model for a very long time because I don't like to see companies, especially science-based companies, land up in like the valley of death where they get government grants or they get funding and then past a certain point, um, they too early or the world doesn't get what they're doing. And then the stuff just doesn't get used. It's devastating. There's a lot of science that needs to really be commercialized. I think I'm very lucky in the sense that um, you ask about uh, my obsession with data science. I have an obsessive mind when it comes to pattern recognition, like crazy obsessive. I think I may have OCD when it comes to it, but it stood me in good stead in the sense that I figured out after studying for a very long time, where these challenges lie for these companies and how I can be of most value to them to prevent a lot of these companies from not going all the way. And so what I came up with was I, I help companies hands-on seed series A again. Um, the companies need to be world-class in the sense that the founders rate really need to be obsessed with the problem they're solving. They need to have like world-class knowledge of the problem they're solving again because these are the things that will, it, it, it helps a company get through these very difficult uh, funding rounds if they really understand the problem they're going after. And so I, I choose a certain number of companies that I believe should be helped because the world is better for it. And I help them hands on. I'm surrounded by a group of experts who are, again, world-class at what they do. I've earned their trust. I've earned their respect. 
they help these companies hands-on. So when it comes to a science company that I, I like I've invested in, I will take them to my entire network. And whether it's as a commercial partner, I try to get them customer contracts. I try to get them whatever I can because that funding is so impossible. Uh, usually if they don't have it to keep going and if they do have it, it makes it easier from an investor perspective. So whatever I can do to help them de-risk the company so we can keep hitting those funding milestones and keep helping them keep on going. Past a certain point, um, I think it becomes a lot easier. Um, but what you are saying is extremely important. I mean, especially empathetic to companies like in Europe and in um, the emerging markets. Like I see some extraordinary companies come out of the UK, out of Europe, out of um, a lot of these countries where I think um, they're so focusing on the science, which is great, but they need the help on the commercialization side. And as I say, I took it upon myself to really become commercially savvy to help these types of companies get where they need to go. But I, I think it, not every investor is willing to, to get so involved in companies to help them succeed. And when these companies are looking for help, they need to look for investors who are willing to commit 10, 12 years of their lives to being on that journey with them and not just saying, well, I'll give you advice. They need to see all those investors, all those people willing to put skin in the game and truly help them because otherwise they just do more damage than good to themselves and to their companies. Okay. I believe that there are one possible way how we could improve this situation um, is a further uh, evangelism of science um, since childhood. Because at some point, we actually turn technology into movement. So even, I, I, for instance, I've just mentored program uh, in Palestine and Israel, and young people build application in order to tackle climate change, um, water efficiency. So basically, kids and teenagers are already obsessed with topic of tech. So another thing we could do um, is uh, popularize science further. There is a, uh, basically even very interesting project, and we even have a talk with them. It's called Detective Dot. They are from the UK, and they publish books uh, for kids uh, in order to become obsessed with computer science and explore what is fake news. So it's about basic digital literacy and kind of an informational citizen. So I would love to ask you, how do you see the further popularization of science in mainstream since childhood and schools? So congratulations on what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And it's so, so, so important. And I know a lot of people talk about doing it, but not... We, we can do so much more. So for me, again, this goes back to a mentor I had. So um, she was a physicist, one of the only physicists in South Africa. And um, she used to write children's books. And whilst it so, seemed like a very simplistic concept, um, we used to lecture together. When she wasn't lecturing, she was writing these kids' books. And they were these tiny books. And it was forever ago. And she used to take the most advanced physics concepts and draw them in little cartoons. And she used to bake them into these little books and have them published. And I was, I was spellbound by these things. And they were permanently sold out. And no one even knew um, about this stuff. But there were parents who valued this stuff and thought it was extremely important. And I could see the effect of that a very long time ago and it, it planted a seed in my mind in terms of how early this needs to start. So like three year old kids 
four-year-old kids who are reading these books and understanding, as I say, concepts that people study at university. And I, I, I agree with you. Um, it's incredibly important that we do more of this stuff. And I think the one thing that will come out of this corona crisis is the fact that people see science as being cool. Like I often talk to my entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs I'm mentoring. I'm like, do you realize you like modern day rock stars? Like I know entrepreneurs don't get it, especially scientists, they don't get it. And I remember walking into IndieBio here in San Francisco, and I'm sure you've experienced it. And it's like the coolest, coolest science accelerator I've ever walked into. And I was like, this feels like dying and going to heaven. Everyone's running around building these awesome, awesome companies and everyone is cool. Like you want to spend all your time there. And some of the most incredible stuff is being built inside there. But the moment you walk in, you feel like, I've walked into the future and I wish more people could experience environments like that where you like, you feel a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of growth. And, um, I'm, I'm in the future and I grew up in South Africa, as you know, and we never had exposure to this kind of thing. Like I used to clean all the lab equipment in my school and no one even knew I did this. I did this like on the sly quietly because they would have thought I'm even a bigger geek than I actually am. And I think I was embarrassed because I wasn't a cool kid. I was like this super nerdy, you know, do everything right. I want to go and study overseas. And, and it was hard. It was hard always having to hide who I truly was versus this is cool. This is fun. Um, it's ironic because two of the smartest people in Silicon Valley came from the same environment as me. So Rulof Puerta, who's one of the guys that runs Sequoia Capital and Elon Musk, both came from the same environment as me. And as you said, like, um, these are the kind of people that change the world, but it takes also being comfortable with who we are and educating kids that, yes, this is fun. Yes, this is cool. You can be like those people. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Your environment doesn't stop you. And I think going back to, I know we've discussed it, but the internet plays a huge role in creating communities where people like us feel safe. We feel um, secure to be ourselves. Like recently a startup just approached me and it's a community where extraordinary young people, brilliant, brilliant young people in their, in their high school years, in their, these years that are so critical, they can interact with world-class people just like them and compete. And it's all around science. It's all around these things where they can measure how good they are in a very safe, healthy environment and then the best universities the best recruiters are looking in these environments to see like who are people that we should be spending our time on should we get to know these people should we build relationships with these people so even if you come from an environment where you haven't had all the opportunities these are places where you can now expose yourself and expose your talents and i think the more we can embrace this the more people like you and i as young thought leaders can say like be yourself be true to yourself stop building stuff don't be scared to go out there. Like yesterday, day before, this 15-year-old whiz kid reached out to me and he's commercialized some um, very, very in interesting cancer research. And he's like raising a ton of money and he wants to intern with me. And I'm like, what the hell? What am I going to teach this 15-year-old genius? But it was really cool because it was like, this is what is possible. Like it's starting younger and younger for young people to do extraordinary things where we can now learn from them, but that means we have to actually fund them. That's the critical part where it's like you changing your own paradigm in terms of the fact that yes, this 15 year old kid is building a world-class company. It is my responsibility 
to take this company seriously, to take it to the right investors, to stand by him while he builds it, builds it, because this could change the world. Now, I would love to talk about diversity. Um, in 2017, I've launched a foundation dedicated to minority creators and innovators, and not so many people actually aware of that uh, this venture was driven by my personal story. Um, my mom uh, was a victim of domestic violence. And actually, um, it, it was a very dramatic experience. When I called police, uh, they said, uh, nobody is dead, so we don't care. And at, at this point, I realized that in our world, we have a problem even much bigger than uh, just a, a financial gap or problems with diversity. We have a huge problem in a power and some fragile communities, niches, and social groups. And I realize how people like me or my mom or particular groups are fragile in some situations. So I would love to ask you, how do you define a diversity term for yourself and how you bring diversity on your work, in your projects, in your initiative as a diversity advocate? So thank you for sharing what you just shared. Um, I know how hard that must be. I also can identify with it very, very strongly. Um, I experienced a lot of similar stuff to what you just spoke about. And um, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. I kept it a secret for a very long time. I grew up in very, very difficult circumstances. And um, when I got my UN appointment, I needed to tell the truth. I felt I owed it to the UN. I owed it to people um, who would, you know, who would connect with me to, to talk about what I'd been through. And it's taken many, many years. And um, I, we cannot remove ourselves from the experiences we've had. And for a long time, people said to me, will you write a book? Will you tell, like, why are you so obsessed with this investing? Why are you so obsessed with entrepreneurship? Why are you so obsessed with creating an even playing field? Going back to your question about diversity. And a person's life is made up of their experiences. And now I'm at a point where I finally agreed to tell my story. And I think for a lot of people who look up to me, it will make a lot more sense why I've done a lot of the stuff I've done, why I've chosen to do it in the manner that I've chosen to do it. And I think that goes back to how I invest, why I do what I do. But um, I take diversity extremely seriously. I take um, helping people extremely seriously. I grew up where... I'd often reach out to people that I perceived as heroes and um, like what you've been through when you've been through a very difficult time. Um, trust is a huge thing. And um, often people let me down. Often people were not what they seemed to be. Often people were um, very commercially minded, you know, very like what's in it for me. And you're like a young kid and you're trying to find your way. But what it does do, is it trains you to really see people for who they are. And it's helped me as far as working with entrepreneurs and seeing what a mission-driven entrepreneur looks like. So when you say to me, what is diversity to me? Um, I've won a lot of awards and those things, and I've always found it very difficult to accept those awards because I, I don't feel like I've accomplished anything of any real substance. I've been very, very fortunate. I, I've been given a lot of chances. Um, I've had some very, very, very bad experiences in my life. 
And I've had to come back from, I do a ton of personal work in terms of self-growth in dealing with traumas. I've been through a net, which makes me more empathetic to entrepreneurs. Like, like what you're talking about, they come to me often. Um, going back to your question is what does diversity look like? Often people that are coming from minority backgrounds, people that are coming from the emerging markets in whatever shape or form, people that are women. Um, I identify with many, many of these people. I don't just, when I do what I do, which is fighting for a better world, and I do it by means of investing, and I, I don't just do it for women. I do it for people who have had a difficult time, who have lifted themselves up through extreme difficulty, and have found their way to a better life, a better world. They are making significant improvements to themselves, to their families, to their communities. And I feel a sense of responsibility to each and every one of those people, which is a hard burden to carry, let me tell you, to help them grow and succeed. Um, but that being said, diversity to me is, it's, I like to work with interesting people who have different opinions, who will challenge me, who come from different worlds. I couldn't, I can't stand the idea of everyone around me being exactly the same. I don't want to be the same as every single person around me. It's boring. So uh, for me, diversity is looking around and seeing, wow, all these different people, all these different walks of life, having this conversation with you. You've had, as, as you're talking to me, it's like you're peeling away your, your, your life layer by layer. And I find you more and more fascinating as we engage. For me, that's a foundation upon which to build a relationship and a foundation of which to do more together, to collaborate more together. I'm hoping you'll send me companies. You sound like you work with some very interesting companies, companies that I can help. So I know it's a very complex question, but we live in a complex world. And for me, it's not just as simple as saying, well, I'm a champion for women and I'm a champion for yeah, minorities. I'm a champion for people that are different. And yeah, it's cool to be different. Based on your experience, if someone uh, face prejudice, uh, some issues, for instance, uh, is a neurodiverse individual, I face prejudice uh, numerous times. Sometimes uh, is it some kind of a jokes or, or laughing so uh, or uh, take, not, not taken seriously so what is your advice for people who became involved in such situations like, like for instance as an employee of particular technology company or ecosystem should they go away or find a polite way to deal with such situation thank you again for the question I'm going to speak my truth and I hope it helps. And then we can dig deeper in terms of what happens when you're an employee in these situations, because those are very complicated situations as well. I've experienced extreme amounts of prejudice in my life. Um, for a long time, I carried that burden internally. I didn't discuss it with anyone. And for a long time, I felt there was something wrong with me rather than the prejudice that was being laid upon me. It did a lot of damage to my self-esteem. And it took finding my own people and admitting who I was to say, um, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just different. But it was brutal to get to the point where I acknowledged that I'm just different and I need to hang around people who are the same as me. But I know what it's like. Um, what I learned to do, and as I say, it took a very long time, was 
I put objective measures in place in my life because I knew that being objective, going back to the data scientist to me and being able to measure what I'm doing in my life and allowing other people to measure what I was doing in my life was the only way I would overcome the prejudice. It was the only way I could grow from these experiences instead of them destroying me. So for example, with the investing for a long time, when I started out, um, and I was getting, I was doing very well at it, but it still hurt a lot. I was just being told, Oh, you're like a, an impact investor. And it wasn't meant in a positive term. It was, um, often women are seen as impact investors. If you know, that's just how you get categorized. And I was like, what are you measuring that by? What does it mean to be an impact investor? And I figured out very quickly, it wasn't a compliment. It's like, you're not a serious investor. Oh, like why, why is that the case? And it took a long time, but I was like, okay, so they think I just invest in social entrepreneurship companies and that's impact. And I was like, okay, I'm going to add something to this. I'm going to add the word performance to this. So it's like my companies perform the entrepreneurs I invest in perform. They deliver on the milestones that they've set in place, objective milestones. And it was brutal. Don't get me wrong. The whole time people were like, they won't take you seriously. They won't take you seriously. And when I started taking myself seriously in terms of the standards I put in place where I go to investors and I have met with some hardcore investors, I, I deal with some of the best investors in the world. And it's like, I've almost said to them, put up a screen between what you see and what you hear. And it was funny because like for a long time, my investing partner and I would have these very brutal conversations and he'd be like, you need to say this stuff to the world, not just to me. The world needs to see what's inside your head. If they see you just as this cute little face, you know, pretty and sweet and all those things, they will never take you seriously. And the feedback was hard to hear. But I needed to take myself seriously and I needed to be willing to be challenged and say things that were uncomfortable, things that were challenging the status quo. And I needed to be ready to have negative feedback. And I got a lot of negative feedback and I had to learn to be like, I don't care. I just don't care. And I still, I find it hard. I still find a lot of the stuff people say like this and that, but it gets easier. And the funny thing is that's how I progressed because I have said, well, you will hear what's in my head and what is in my head is world-class. I'm a world-class investor and I can prove it. And people are like, how can you prove it? And it's like, well, look at the companies I invested in. Look what they are achieving. Look how I help them. That is objective. Look at how I go about this. And the more you can challenge yourself and you create that discomfort for yourself, and the more you say, I will lean into this prejudice. I will not take it on board. But instead of becoming the victim they want me to be, I will overcome. And I think it came from a large part of that came from I mentored Nelson Mandela's grandson. And no one knew I did. I was teaching him maths. And I got to experience um, Nelson Mandela from the internal side versus the external side. And I got to see how you, he practiced what he preached. And when he talked about people breaking us down and we can either become the same as them or we can show them what we're really made of and become better than that. That is what creates the change. And going back to what you were saying, it's a very, very difficult set of circumstances overcoming prejudice. I have seen brutal stuff. Um, 
I can speak it because I have more freedom because I'm an entrepreneur and because I'm investing for myself, which creates its own problems. But I've learned to overcome that stuff. It's still a journey. Don't get me wrong. Every day you're like breaking through glass ceilings. As far as entre- as far as people working at companies goes, I I don't want people to walk away from stuff, especially when they haven't done anything wrong. Because what what seems like an easy solution at the time creates pain within you. You are saying to yourself, I had to leave because these people wouldn't accept me for me. Instead of saying, well, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to say to these people, I'm going to stand here. And it's going to be brutal. But the number one person in all of this is you. That is the ultimately the only one that actually matters. And that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn. learn. I spent my life trying to get other people's approval instead of getting my own approval. And so as an employee, it's very hard because often you need the income and you're like, well, if I leave this job, am I going to find another job? Um, What happens? And there's that sense of uncertainty. But Steve Jobs said it, like the ability to say no and keep saying no is ultimately what creates the opportunities and training yourself to say, I will honor myself. I will honor this life. I will say no, because that is how I create my very best self my very best company, my very best opportunities comes from me honoring myself. That's the foundation, but it's not easy. It's, it's very hard. It's an individual journey, but going back to what you said, it's about community. If you have the right people supporting you, watching your back, you share the same values as them. You'll feel you have places to turn and people to talk to that will stand by you when you have to undergo the stuff. Let's talk woman in tech. Uh, recently, uh, Melinda Gates launched the initiative focused on hubs uh, uh, for uh, women in order to empower more women in technology. She also mentioned that we need around 100 years in order to uh, reach equality. So as a champion for women, I would like to ask you, how do you think is there a point where we uh, face issue and bottleneck with women in tech whether is about school or universities or a work uh, workplace and based on your experience why venture capitalists still invest less in companies driven by minorities or women so let me start by saying i love bull and melinda gates and like i'm obsessed with every piece of content they put out. Um, I'm, you know, like just literally I read Bull's uh, reading list, every single book that he puts on it. So like to me, they're heroes. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, Melinda is right. The stuff is, it's a very serious problem. It's a very embedded problem. Um, it's going to take a lot of work to fix. And as someone that is a champion for the stuff, I see it on a daily basis. I've seen it in very different environments. I've seen it in the emerging markets in South Africa. I've seen it in the UK. I've seen it in the US. I've seen which environments are doing a better job, not. I've also seen um, how society pretends to some extent that things are getting better when often they're not dealing with the core problems. Like, so for example, you talk about venture capitalists. And 
that situation is brutal for women and minorities, for people coming from the outside, it is brutal. Like, as I said to you, I'm obsessed with recognizing patterns and I know how a lot of VCs invest because I study patterns. And it turns out if you study enough LinkedIn profiles, you can see a pattern to how people invest, why they invest. I understand it makes a lot of sense for a series of reasons because it just, you know, you're trying to de-risk your portfolio. People have limited partners that they're responsible to. They want to make sure their companies don't fail. So it's easier to invest in things that are tried and tested that come out of networks that are very well established, that um, entrepreneurs that are well referenced, that have degrees that you're very comfortable with. I get that. I get that from a people, people's careers on the line. So it's not that I'm sitting judging VCs. I understand that if your portfolio blows up because you go and you just invest in, you know, a whole bunch of people from around the world that you don't necessarily know in environments you don't necessarily understand because, you know, you want to, you want to support things and you want to make things better. Ultimately you will pay a price for that. I get that. So I get where people are coming from. I'm not here to judge anyone. I'm here to talk about the facts and the facts are that women and minorities are not being funded in the way that they should be. And, um, the problems are very inherent and they are very problematic. Um, I did a venture capital program and um, it was at a very famous university. And I had a problem with one of my portfolio companies and I had a room full of VCs in the room with me. And um, I'm fortunate to say, I believe I was the most knowledgeable person in the room, objectively speaking. My classmates, I think, would agree with this. And I, I, I said, well, I put up my hand and it was a topical question. And I was like, I have this problem with this portfolio company. This is a company that could be a unicorn. Um, I need to make some changes within this company. Um, how do I go about making these changes? And um, the professor basically made it a gender question. It had nothing to do with gender whatsoever, but he's, his behavior towards the woman VCs in the room versus the men, male VCs in the room, it was evidently clear where things really stood in terms of um, he did not like the woman VCs in the room. And at every t- turn, he made that quite clear, whether it was asking questions, whatever it may be, it was clear the bias was there. And it was food for thought because I was like, this is reality. This is at VC level where the woman VCs are not being given the opportunities that the male VCs. And I always tell people about this instance because people start laughing. And a woman VC from a government came afterwards to me and she's like, like, are you okay? Like, or like seriously, the way he picked on you. And I was like, I started laughing. Cause I'm like, I'm so used to this. I don't, I'm not even affected anymore. You know, like, I just don't care. I just get on with it. But that is an example of venture capital level of how serious things actually are, that it is a problem, a very serious problem, but people are trying to change it. I agree. More women are being, you know, invited to join VC firms in that. But then you have to look deeper and you have to say, well, how much of the management fees do they get? How much of the carry do they get? How is that? How, how are their salaries actually structured? Because often what will end up happening is they will not get an equal percentage of what that VC firm and other GPs are actually making. So that's one thing. I deal with a lot of limited partners. Um, a lot of the opportunities I've been getting is from the limited partner level. For people who don't know, limited partners are the people that actually fund venture capitalists. And that's been a very interesting experience because I've been dealing with sovereign wealth funds. I've been dealing with massive institutional investors. And those people want things to change. What people are not aware of is that limited partners are actually a lot more diversity friendly. And the conversations I have and the reason I've gotten a lot of support 
is because those people want more diversity. They want more VCs to fund more entrepreneurs that will, you're just opening up the pool. It just makes sense to fund people from across the board because your chance of success is so much greater. But it comes down to the VCs being willing to take risks. On the entrepreneur side, yes, it's brutal. Um, I think part of the problem that can be addressed by people like you and me is the things that we as women can do as entrepreneurs that we can do a lot better to help ourselves, like the idea of not being afraid to ask for money. So I will see pictures on a regular basis and the guys will come in and the pictures may be half-baked or whatever it may be. They may not be 100% prepared and they'll come in and they'll be like, I'm going to pitch... I'm going to pitch you and I'm going to get the cash out of you. And is that sense of like, I don't care. I'm taking no prisoners. I'm going to get this job done. And the women have been trained to be more careful, more cautious, more, I'm the same. I had to learn to do this stuff. I had to learn to get out of my comfort zone. I had to learn to be like, I want this money and I'm not taking no for an answer. And um, it was training. It was like going to a gym and training this and being like, give me this money. Like I'm building a company. I need this money and I'm not leaving to give me this money. And I've had very disruptive conversations, but I can tell you one thing, take it from me, take it from someone that had to survive for a very long time in their life. If you want investors respect each and every one of you, this is the secret. Never be afraid to ask for money. And the more you ask for it and the more gutsy you are and the more you can say it with conviction, the more investors will respect you. Do not engage with an investor for coffee, via email, via any type of interaction. Always make sure you've got an ask there and make it compelling. Even if you're not ready to ask, ask for something because you're training yourself the whole time to ask because that's how they see how good you are building your company. They saying to themselves in their head, is this person going to build a world-class company? And if you keep asking people for stuff, they're going to be like, okay, they're engaging with me this way. They're going to engage with customers this way. They are very serious. So it's small habits that we can change as entrepreneurs, as women, to create the kind of companies that people take seriously. And even if it's a social enterprise, again, I have challenges with this because I've lived and breathed this and people often don't take them more seriously or as serious as they could. And I think what I've come to learn is if you can take a social enterprise and put a, a profit-driven motive to it, you'll have a lot more success because people will take it a lot more seriously. Unfortunately, that's our reality, especially coming from the emerging markets. But constantly training yourself to not be afraid to ask for money will stand you in very good stead when it comes to really changing the status quo. Uh, talking about diversity uh, and women on the high level, I would love to uh, recall recent publication regarding how different countries deal with the uh, COVID-19. And basically, it mentioned that, look at this, what countries would successfully deal with the COVID-19 have in common? And there is a photo that all of them uh, were women. So the leaders of the Finland, New Zealand, uh, some other Nordic countries. So basically leaders who act in a more transparent way, not in order to demonstrate power or how they're independent or how they can deal in, in better way, but just were efficient, transparent, and re realistic in terms of action. Uh, 
become more efficient in this situation. Do you feel there is a, some kind of a correlation and a good ex example for VCs uh, and people who hire or appoint women on the, uh, on the high level? Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think part of the reason I've managed to make the progress that I've made is because you use that word, I'm transparent. So it's been a journey to get to a point where I can be completely transparent. But when I get on a phone with an investor and an investor turns around to me and says, like, I, I phone them and like, I want you to back on my deals. And the investor's like, but it's about luck. And, you know, like they come up with all these reasons and why is, why is your company more special than all these other companies? And I turn around to them. I'm like, cause I'm going to tell you the truth. Part of the deal I have with my companies is I always tell the truth. I know the secrets that I have to keep between me and the founders. That's important to have the founders trust. That's super, super important. But there's also things that I say to the founder, are you comfortable with me discussing this with the investors? Are you comfortable with this? Are you comfortable with this? And the right founders who have the right, they have the integrity, they've built their companies in a way that are strong and solid with good foundations. Their attitude is be transparent, be honest, show that you have good governance in place because it gets you so much further. Being able to have a real human conversation with someone else saying, these are the strengths, these are the weaknesses, I need your help in order for this to succeed. This is what I am doing. Be honest with me. Give me your feedback. I'm here to listen and learn and apply. It's amazing the response you get from people. And as I say, people may be listening and thinking, well, she's crazy. That doesn't always, you know, like if I told those people the truth, that would never fly. That goes back to who do you choose to spend your time with? Who do you choose to work with? Have you chosen people well enough that they are aligned in terms of your values, in terms of your goals, in terms of your mission? Because if you have chosen the right people to stand by you on your journey, you will be able to be 100% transparent. And that is where you can create the kind of change and the kind of success that you want. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for people seeing me at my worst, seeing me with all the challenges, me being willing to be vulnerable and saying, I don't know how to do this. You're going to see me screw up. You're going to see me make mistakes. You're going to see me cry. You're going to see me fall on my face. But all they want to see is that you keep on going. And I think like you said, it. it's about humility. It's not about ego. It's about doing the personal work in the sense that you're like, this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. And when you talk about those leaders, um, I know some of them. And I think they're doing what they're doing for the right reasons in the sense that they, they have countries or citizens that look up to them, that can identify with them, who can see them both strengths and weaknesses and seeing that they, they, their motives are right. I, can't, I, I, I don't know what the future holds. As I say, the world's become a very interesting place. But I think we're living in a world where transparency, where um, doing things with integrity governing yourself well, governing your company well, governing your country well, that is what creates success for the long term. But again, it goes back to doing the work. I have two more questions regarding diversity in technology and we're going to conclusion. So uh, recently we faced one big problem regarding facial recognition um, in regard of the minorities, women of people 
of color. In particular, um, in 20 and up to 30% of cases, AI isn't, wasn't able to uh, correctly recognize face of women and sometimes people of color. And it was related to technology driven by companies like Amazon, for instance. So um, I have the following question. Do you think that this problem is connected not only to technology um, challenges, but also social problems? And uh, I would love to uh, underline two things here. First, on one hand, uh, until this moment, some companies just ignore that particular uh, communities or uh, social groups exist. So we just don't put criteria uh, about these people to program. So because in the end of the day, any technology is about criteria. How we define what is a woman, what is a man, what genders we have what uh, uh, kind of uh, na uh, nations we have. So if we ignore particular people, we have no criteria. So we're not able to teach machine to recognize with people. And on the other hand, we lack of a, what I call social scientists in residence, people who um, define meanings on the workplace, who help, to, who help technologists to connect uh, technology with society and humanity. What is your opinion about facial recognition with challenge? So thank you. And my apologies for the noise outside. They're cleaning the streets in San Francisco. But um, I couldn't agree with you more on both points. Um, large groups of very important people are being ignored around the globe. And um, it does create these biases. Like um, I invested in um, a company AI-driven small business loans. And um, it was a long time ago, and the company's doing very, very well. It works with um, Small Business Administration here in the U.S. And I saw the importance of this firsthand because um, it was obvious. It was obvious long before the stuff became prevalent how biased a lot of the stuff actually was and how important it was to start talking about it. So in the U.K., um, I do a lot of political stuff. And... Um, I had ministers coming to me in the UK government saying like, your company's doing some stuff that's very important in terms of equalizing the playing field for people who own small businesses, because we know the data is that minorities and women own the bulk of small businesses. And when it comes to loans, there's very serious biases in place. And I know today, um, you know, there's a lot more being spoken about around this, but going back to your question in terms of facial recognition and that, it's very serious. I think you're right. There should be, um, at each of these companies, there should be a team in place that helps support this and helps start um, leveling things out. But I don't believe that's enough. I think there needs to do much, much, much more about this. Again, going back to your question earlier from Melinda Gates, we have a long journey to travel. And I don't believe that a small team in a very big organization in a very big world is enough. I believe it's important, but it's not enough. And so... Um, I can say that having experienced these things, these things, I see the importance of funding startups attacking these types of problems. And a lot of these fund, uh, startups becoming global players that will change things. But again, it's a journey in terms of getting that right. Um, again, at times we can get frustrated because, you know, we have all experienced these types of things. We've seen it firsthand. Um, 
But that being said, we have to be positive. We have to do the work. We have to back people who are interested in these subjects to, uh, you know, go to PhD level with them, to really study them, to have voices, to get them on the global stage, to get them the support to people like Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, and that where they have a voice where you can create some type of legislation. I think the legislation is very important where um, forward thinking countries like Canada, like the UK, where countries are willing to say, we need stuff like this in place because we're living in a world where so many people are not being treated equally and it won't be in the way that we are used to in the past. It will be in this new way that AI will basically run things for us. And if we don't attack that problem now, it's going to look very, very bleak down the line for a lot of people. Uh, as inventors, as a scientist, uh, we usually completely involved in our work. And sometimes we are pretty limited in terms of what happened uh, beyond us. For instance, just in the uh, previous year, in the first time in my life, I faced corruption while uh, dealing with the European Commission. So I faced a, a fraud project. And I was so surprised as a naive kid. So what I can do, so usually um, I always deal with very smart and good people. And collaboration is a kind of my uh, kind of work. And I always trust people. And it was kind of an aha moment for me. So I would love to ask you, how do you think should inventors could be kind of an activist? And they, if they face some kind of a problem situation, should they have a skills, how, uh, what they should do in this situation, maybe some kind of a petition, uh, how to protect themselves, legal literacy. Do we need this knowledge uh, across our technology in scientific ecosystem? Great question. Great thoughts. Um, I think I'd love to talk to you more about this once the interview's done, because um, I experienced something similar. So I know what it's like so i grew up in south africa as you know and we built um one of the top digital media agencies in south africa and they were starting to change things in terms of um, economic empowerment net and i started seeing um corruption firsthand so for example we as um i'm a woman i owned the business okay so here's an example of what it was like and um we were being told no uh, you've got to work with this company, this company, this company in order to deal with your client, which is a multinational client. And it was like, this is insane. Uh, we must charge more so that these people can get all their kickbacks so that we can still do the work and deal with the client. So these people are not actually doing anything. They're just there as placeholders. And it got like, it was not nice. And it was like, it was at the beginning of it. And I was like, I don't want any part of this. This just doesn't this doesn't feel right. Like this is not what I signed up for. And that was when I, that was the beginnings of me saying, um, I want to go and build companies in another country because I can't deal with the corruption. I don't feel comfortable with it. I see it um, everywhere. If anyone's been following the South African situation, you can all see what happened with the Guptas and what they did to South Africa. Um, they plundered South Africa and um, South Africa hasn't recovered from, you know, the damage that was done through corruption. And, um, what you went through is brutal. And it will, I, one of my companies in Africa, um, said to me, they got funding from Silicon Valley, some famous investors. And he said, I will not deal with corruption. I will not deal with an African government who asks me for bribes. And it was a very interesting conversation because 
I have to deal with this with my entrepreneurs in the emerging markets. I have to see corruption take place firsthand and be like, my entrepreneurs, I've chosen high integrity people and they don't want to deal with this stuff. And so it's like, how do you equip these people to build these kinds of companies in these markets where corruption is a foundation upon which everybody works? How do you help these become the lead, These people become the leaders that they ultimately will need to become in order to create the kind of companies that will create the change that we want them to create? And it's a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs like here in North America, they haven't experienced that. And they're very lucky because it's real. It's a day-to-day problem. Like I've, I've invested in companies in India. I've invested in companies in Indonesia. I've invested in companies in China. The stuff is real and it's brutal. And it's like a growing up process as an entrepreneur because like you, um, you come from a place of goodness. When you're an entrepreneur, by and large, you come from a place of we have a certain DNA. We're trying to make things better. We're trusting. We believe that if we do right, the rest of the world will do right by us. And you put your head down. You're trying to focus on what's important, building the company, looking after the employees. As you say, you're an inventor. That's a noble, noble profession to be to invent something. It's extraordinary. And I would like to do more stuff like this, like with you, like with the communities we've created, where we have these very, I try to be honest, I try to equip entrepreneurs for the realities. But a lot of the stuff does not get discussed. A lot of the dirty side of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and deal with these horrible, horrible situations. I deal with it on a regular basis. I've seen how corrupt investing can be. I've seen how investors see companies. Often, investors see companies nothing more than commodities, that they're a pile of you know, like rubbish on a pile of, on a rubbish dump. Because if you don't make it through, if you're one of the companies that's not going to deliver huge returns, investors are looking at you and saying, why should I waste my time? I know what that feels like. I know how awful that feels. And so it's very important as entrepreneurs upfront to learn these skills that no one is going to teach you. You can read the stuff on the internet, you can, but you need to learn it from other entrepreneurs who have been there, who have succeeded, who are willing to say to you, This is what you are in for. Are you willing to do this? And how are you going to deal with these situations when they happen? Because it is awful and it is lonely, but only you get to decide. And as I say, I've seen entrepreneurs become corrupt. I haven't invested in them. I'm very lucky. But I've seen people become very, very wealthy doing things that I wouldn't feel comfortable doing. I have to go to bed every night. I have to lie. I've put my head on a cushion and I have to be okay with the fact that I am my father's child. My father was a very, very honest man. And he never died a billionaire, but he died a very good man with a very big, like people loved him. People remember him that way because he lived with integrity and honor. And I think so we each have to find our own way through this. But having these conversations like with us, where it's like you went through this and I'd love to know how you're dealing with it. And and how you hold people accountable. We're a new generation of leaders. And as a result of being a new generation of leaders, we're not going to sit quietly while people do the stuff to us, but it takes a group of us to say, no, that doesn't work for us. No, you will create this a transparency. You will earn our trust or we won't work with you. And a lot of these organizations can't afford not to work with us because we're the next generation. We're going to run countries. We're going to run big organizations, big companies. They need to work with us and they need to understand we wired differently to previous generations. There are a lot of things that just don't work for us. And this is an example of what you're talking about. 
And my last question, um, one year ago, I had a talk with the leader of one of the acceleration programs, and um, I asked her regarding Ferrana's scandal. So I, I asked her, what do you know about Ferrana's? And she said, oh, I read this book. I mean, Blood Blood book. And I said, no, I'm not asking about book. I'm asking about hustle in health technology. Do you understand how it's huge? And she said, oh, no, I, I never thought about this. So while we have a huge example of a corruption, hustle, bubbles, people still don't realize the whole uh, scope of a problem in our industry. How many startups just make copycats, bubbles, or uh, go beyond uh, actual invention process. So I would love to ask you, what is your recipe uh, for people who just become inventors? What would you say in order to motivate them to be genuine, real inventors, not people who create copycats or some kind of bubbles just in order to make an impression on the market, but actually change the world in a positive way? Brilliant question. And um, if you ask me the question about bad blood, um, it's funny because um, I remember being in an interview in London for a board position at a pharmaceutical company, a very big pharmaceutical company. And um, the recruiter decided to make the entire interview around Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes at the time. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is mad. Like, she kept just digging deeper and deeper and deeper in terms of my view of Elizabeth. And she decided to make this a comparison about me versus Elizabeth. And am I the same as her? Am I not the same as her? And I started noticing a pattern. I was like, this is weird. Like, people keep asking me about Elizabeth as if I'm female and I'm young and I'm trying to do something of value in the world. And like, I'm an investor and I engage with very powerful people. Therefore, people are assuming that I'm like, Elizabeth, it's like, it's kind of weird. Like we're both just female and we're both young and we're into science. I, I think we, that doesn't make us best friends. That doesn't make us, you know, like it doesn't make us anything. I've never met her, but I found it very interesting because people kept drawing me into this. And um, it started then becoming about my portfolio companies where people would, I, I saw it firsthand with my portfolio companies in terms of people saying, well, how do I know they're not a Theranos? How do I know they're not a Theranos? And it was really interesting because a lot of my companies that are like science-based companies have got like founders fund and like very, very hardcore investors where people have gone through these companies with a fine tooth comb in terms of making sure that these companies are everything they say they are. Like, and what I learned was to help extraordinary people not go through the kind of problems that this has created. And it has created a lot of challenges for a lot of companies. I saw in the UK, I saw here companies that were in that space go bankrupt because no one wants to fund them anymore. And um, it was it was hard. It had a lot of negative effects for a lot of people and then a lot of people were unaffected. But what I learned from the experience for really talented inventors is setting yourself up correctly in the sense that if you can have patents, have those types of things where it's undisputed what you are doing and you are the creator of this, um, these foundations make a huge difference. 
and getting government grants, like for example, in Canada, where um, the government funds a lot of very interesting scientific based research, that kind of funding, when it comes to raising funding for very cool inventions, it de-risks the company, it de-risks the inventor, and it helps them set the company up correctly. Getting investors who are strong experts in that space, who understand what you're doing, who will be your friends and allies and mentors. And even if you, even if you have a long way to go before you know, you're world famous or anything, having those people on your journey, writing investor updates every month, talking about what you're doing, getting that feedback from those people who are experts, being transparent about what you're doing. It helps so much because it enables people to help guide you and help, um, help set you up for success. Like I know one of the investors, he's a mentor of mine. He was one of my first mentors here in the U S and he was the first position on wall street. And he's had like tons of companies that he's helped scale from seed all the way to public company or M and A. And I was wet behind the ears, you know, like I was like a baby coming to the US. Not, I had no idea, even though I'd been an entrepreneur for so long in South Africa, how much I still had to learn about the US market. And he saw me at my most draw, but he was willing to take that time and energy and help groom me to succeed because he'd come from Zimbabwe and he knew what it was like to come here to become extremely successful here and the growth that had to take place. And he was one of the people that the Theranos deal got first taken to. And it's really funny because he said, without even knowing who, you know, who else was, you know, the deal was being shown to very, very famous investors. He just looked at the science and he was like, the science isn't accurate. Like there's something very strange about what I'm looking at. And he passed on the deal and he never thought anything more of it. It just never worked. And a VC, a world famous VC brought in that deal. And he said, like he laughs because he said he just trusted his natural gut instinct and used his training to make a sensible decision. And so for inventors, aligning yourself with the right people and being brave, that's one of the hardest, hardest things I've seen with the portfolio companies. Like I have a science company and um, they're doing some very interesting work. And I was talking to them about the Nobel Prize winner in the space. And I'm connected to this Nobel Prize winner. And I was like, why don't you just go talk to him? You know, like, what have you got to lose? He's the world's most famous person in this. Like, go talk to him. And it can, he can only help, you know, like it sends a red flag to people when you haven't been to that person. Entrepreneurs don't believe me when I say this, but when you're sitting on the other side and the logical thing is to say, has this person been to this person? No. Why not? Uh, I'm not ready. The science isn't ready. You are, you are sending a message that something is wrong. Even if it is not wrong, people are saying, I'm worried about something. Why is this person not doing what is natural and logical? And I know often what I'm asking people to do is extremely uncomfortable. Take it from me. I deal with billionaires. I deal with some of the most powerful investors in the world. I had to stand up and I had to pitch to someone who is world famous. Okay. He's very, very famous. And it was a room full of investors. Everyone left and I had to go after him and I was terrified. But this was the equivalent of what I ask entrepreneurs to do. And I stood there and I just watched him tear apart two of his own fund managers. So he's a limited partner in their funds and he felt they were not delivering on their funds. And I watched him tear them apart for 45 minutes knowing that that was about to happen to me. 
And I went in and I was like, I would be a hypocrite making my entrepreneurs do this if I am not willing to do this to myself. And I pitched him and I just kept going and he kept asking me questions and he kept asking me questions and he's world famous for what he does and he's world class. It's indisputable. Okay. And at the end of it, he said to me, well, one thing is for certain, you are not short of confidence. And I like, he should have known the truth. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified, but I just, I used what was inside my head. I'd acquired enough knowledge and I'd put it inside my head and I used that to engage with them. And in the process, I built an ally out of him. And the fate of what I did was defined by having the ability to go and engage with people like this. And that's where I see companies stumble. When you're saying to companies as inventors, as science-based companies, go and talk to this person, go and talk to the CEO. This person is CEO of Novartis. Don't be scared to go and talk to them. They are just a person at the end of the day. And if you win them over because you are doing something you believe in strongly enough, you have defined the fate of your business in a very different way outside of just being scared. But like I almost beg of inventors to do that. Go and find people who can help set you up for success and write to them, email them, research them, study them. This is not time you're wasting. It's time that is going to set you up for success.